Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. On Caitlin Beatty's book, A Woman's Place, A Christian Vision for Your Calling in the Office, the Home, and the World. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me tonight are Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Leah Henning. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, we're going to give very quick intros of ourselves because we're pretty regular panelists here on the CFP, but just in case anyone's a new listener, um, we're just going to go around the horn. Victoria, why don't you start? Thanks, Katie. Uh, hi, everyone. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am currently Senior Manager of Audience Development at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. And I live uh, just outside of Minneapolis with my husband, Michael Farmer, uh, of the Christian Humanist podcast. Um, and I have had a very busy work week, so this is a good uh, week to discuss the kind of work-life balance things we're going to discuss. Uh, and also, I'm very tired, so if I yawn at any point during the next hour, please forgive me. Thanks so much. Leah, how about you? Hi, uh, my name is Leah Henning. I am living in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm currently working as a job coach with a vulnerable adult in an elementary school. Um, I have my master's in history, a bachelor's in Christian studies and English. I'm excited for this podcast, but I also have had a long work week. So um, I also might be yawning. So uh, I'll be joining Victoria and struggling through that. Thanks. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Houston, Texas, uh, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We uh, both teach at Houston Baptist University. I'm an adjunct professor of English, and we have three children under the age of five. So um, since I'm a part-time teacher and then full-time mom, I definitely have lots of, of balancing going on. This particular week has been a little crazed because... Uh, we have both had midterm grading to do and, you know, the kids don't know it's the week before spring break and we have lots of grading to do. So um, we have also gotten a little bit less sleep than usual or in some, some nights a lot less sleep than usual this week. So I'm, we're all feeling, feeling the fatigue this week, um, but still excited to talk about this book. So we're going to, uh, before we get started, I just wanted to explain why I chose the book because um, this was uh, one that I picked for us to talk about. And I actually chose this text to read before I had read it myself because the title was very intriguing to me. Obviously, from our intros, you can tell that um, at least the three of us um, among, uh, and I think some of our other panelists too, are at places in life where we are figuring out how to balance work and life and thinking about issues of calling and vocation and um, all those kind of uh, different issues. And so I thought it would be really interesting to read one take on kind of 
Christian women working that was given in this book. And so we're going to actually start by giving a little bit of background so that um, listeners, so that you can kind of know what perspectives we're bringing to the book before we talk about the book. So we're just going to give a little bit of brief information about our backgrounds and um, our kind of histories with work and some of the issues that are dealt with in the book. So um, let's go ahead and and get into that. And we're going to start with Victoria. Okay. So um, I, this is kind of free form, so I'm going to try not to ramble too much. Um, my, both my mom and my stepmom, who were kind of the biggest female role models I had growing up, um, worked full time. Um, most of the women sort of that were peripherally involved in my life, um, except for a couple of women at church, worked full time too. So that was sort of always my model. You know, you work and you raise a family and you sort of figure it out. Um, I figured out pretty early on that I, I didn't think I wanted my own children, but I knew that I would probably eventually get married um, and that I would have to work out that balance uh, some way. Especially in the last year and a half, that has been kind of different and difficult for me. Um, since I, I got my first kind of 9 to 5, 40 hour a week job a year and a half ago, um, I've really been trying to figure out what those changes mean. Uh, my schedule used to be much more flexible. I used to help out a lot more around the house and cook more meals. Um, not entirely because I felt obligated. Um, I, I am married to someone and I am in a relationship where, you know, we don't really have men's jobs and women's jobs. We have things that we prefer to do and are better at. We, we try to live, I think, fairly uh, in a fairly egalitarian manner. But even though I espouse those things, um, when I started being home less and doing those things less, I definitely felt super guilty about it, like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Um, so maybe that's just been internalized, I don't know. But Michael and I definitely had to have some conversations where I said, you know, I feel like you're doing too much, I feel like I'm not doing enough um, because I'm not here, because I can't be here right now. And he wonderfully said, you know, no, just because our contributions to our family and our household are shaped differently for a period of time, um, that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's where we are right now. So um, these issues are are definitely something that I'm currently working through and dealing with. Thanks so much. Um, How about you, Leah? What's your take on, on these things? Um, well, I was, <laughs> I was kind of exposed to this since uh, I was little uh, because I was raised in a conservative evangelical Christian home. Um, I was very highly exposed to all of the um, hype around traditional values and views about women and work from a young age, but I have a very different experience interacting with that because my parents um, – had a unique way on how they ran and still run their household. My mother actually earned most of the household income. She was the breadwinner for all intents and purposes for most of my life. And while my dad has always worked, he worked from home. He had his own business and he worked from home. 
my mother actually left us for five days at a time to work in the Twin Cities and stayed away for those five days because the daily commute would have been ridiculous um, and only came home on the weekends. So my dad was actually the one who, um, he taught me at home starting in seventh grade and going through high school. So all of those things combined um, when came to women and work, uh, brought some very different perspectives and experiences, especially interacting with my peers. Um, and I actually remember having conversations with different friends of mine in high school and even in college about how they were concerned about my faith because of the quote unquote untraditional setup of my family's household or questioned how my mother could be a true mother when she wasn't there every day. That was and is, of course, ridiculous because my parents are two of the most loving people I know. But those conversations have stuck with me. Um, And of course, I grew up expecting to work. uh, But that expectation of also marrying, um, of getting a boyfriend and creating a family very early in life um, was placed on me. (laughs) From all of the situations that I was surrounded with, even though the words get married and stay home were never spoken aloud. Um, And I do have a lot of women that I grew up with or that I went to college with who have chosen those those paths, which is perfectly fine um, and wonderful. Uh, but again, that's a another pressure that was put on me as a single Christian girl. Um, and also when I went to a small Christian liberal arts college where get a ring by spring was a very real way of life, Uh, And a lot of my female cohorts are now married with one or more children and not necessarily in the career that they were pursuing. Um, It, it's a bit of a culture shock or perspective shock. And so uh, for me being very career focused, that's always been a bit of a challenge for me to handle when interacting with other Christian women. Most of the time I have to avoid all talk of career. Um, And uh, often remain silent in conversations or feel overlooked because of that. Um, So I'm still finding the balance. (laughs) I am actually in a new relationship now. So I'm gaining visibility in some of those circles, but I'm still pursuing a career as an important and significant part of my life. So figuring out that balance is quite an ongoing thing. Thanks so much. Um, I kind of maybe had the opposite experience of Victoria a little bit when I was a kid because most all of the moms that were my mom's friends didn't work um, at least not full time. Um, some did. I mean, you know, some some worked part time jobs or um, and my mom um, was home with us full time when I was very small. 
And then as I got bigger, she kind of picked up different jobs to help kind of economically to help with the household. But um, they were kind of different. Um, she didn't have a, a career she was aiming at. So I know like when I was very small one time, um, like in elementary school, there I remember there's a brief time when my mom worked for the Mayfield Milk people and she would go to the gro- like different grocery stores and she would have a little stand out in the front of the grocery store with like little milk samples that people could come and sample the Mayfield milk. Um, and we thought it, dad would take us to visit her, you know, at her job. But she, I mean, she did, you know, several different things. And when I was, um, at one point she had a job at my school and that was cool because we, you know, we would go to, um, we would drive in the morning to school with her and then, you know, all day while we were in our classes, she was working as um, a paraprofessional in um, one of the rooms for kids with um, learning difficulties. And so she worked that job and then was able to come home at the end of the day with us. And I know that meant a lot to her. And now um, for probably 10 years now, um, almost 10 years, she's worked for Chick-fil-A corporate doing um, accounting, but from home. So um, like Leah's dad, she works from home. So she's been able to be there, um, at, you know, at least working from home for my youngest brother. Cause my youngest brother, he's just now about to graduate high school in May. So, um, so he's, you know, she's just now kind of ending that part of her life anyway. So I, but even though she was always kind of at home, I still definitely grew up with the idea that I would have a career. I don't know why. I don't know where that came from. Um, part of it honestly might've been, seeing different um different female characters on tv who had jobs because my mom didn't have a career but you know like claire huxtable did you know or other moms that i you know women i saw on tv and so i knew that i was interested in going for more school and i kind of had always wanted to be a a teacher and my parents definitely encouraged me in that um, but interest, I mean, you know, kind of, I grew up in the same, I think kind of same circles as Leah conservative Christian s- circles. And so also I think there was always the expectation that I would get married and have children, no matter what else I did, that those things would also happen. Um, and so when, for example, when I, when I decided I wanted to go for my PhD, my parents said, oh, that's so great because then once you have the terminal degree, then you'll have more like, you know, you'll if you can get a university teaching job, you'll have more flexibility in your schedule to be at home with your kids. Like for them, that's like the best part of that, which and they're not I mean, they're not wrong. That's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to teach in in the university level instead of in high school, for example, is because the schedule is more forgiving. Um, but so it's interesting that, you know, th- that expectation was always there so that when I, I had the idea I would like to do a certain job. And so that was just kind of that was added to the marriage and family expectations, um, you know. So um, now I think I and but now I've kind of ended up doing that so that, you know, I'm, I'm teaching part time right now. Um, and I my plan is to teach part time until my kids are in school. And then once they're in school, I would absolutely like to go back to teaching full time because I really do enjoy it. And um, as terrible as it can be to be an adjunct, I do think that it can be something that is very helpful to someone who has caregiving responsibilities, whether that's, um, well, I should say someone who has caregiving responsibilities and is in a two income house (laughs) Um, so that, uh, you know, the fact that I can work part time is very helpful right now because I have these little babies to take care of. Or, you know, if we were taking care of aging parents or something, um, it's nice to be able to work part time when you want to. 
um, for those for those reasons. But I definitely would like to move back into full time teaching later, and um, so hopefully that's something I can. Because the other thing about teaching part time is that I don't get to do some of the the best stuff about full time teaching, like advising students and forming some of those closer relationships. Um, so that's something that I I think I would enjoy. So just uh, thank you so you so much for sharing those those personal stories and. We're going to go ahead and kind of move forward into talking about this book. And um, just for full disclosure, listeners, um, we were kind of discussing before we started recording. We both, we've had some interesting reactions to this book. I think we all have our particular parts that we liked, and all, but also had some parts that we really disagreed with. So we're going to, I think we should have some lively discussion today. Um, but I just wanted to give a, a brief biography of Caitlin Beatty, who wrote the book. Um, she is the youngest ever and also first female managing editor of Christianity Today. She started out as one of the founders of the hermeneutics section of the Christianity Today website and then later transitioned into being the managing editor of the print magazine. And um, so she is um, an important you know, a big name at a very well-known Christian magazine. And uh, she wrote the book because she wanted to try to, I guess, fill a hole that she saw missing in a discussion of um, Christian women and professional work. But um, so I'm going to actually go ahead and go into that now. I'm going to start in our um, reading section, and I just want to give a, a quick little summary of the introduction and of chapter one, just to give everyone a good idea of the arguments that she's making in this book. And um, she actually starts the book with a personal story about how she kind of grew up with this idea or expectation that, you know, her life would follow a certain Christian woman script of going to college and then working and then getting married and then having babies and so on until, you know, the rest of time. Um, but that she had a, a very significant moment in her life. Um, I think she said at the age of 27, when in the same day, she and her fiance decided to break off their engagement. She had been engaged and thought that marriage, at least in, in, was in her near future at that point. But in the same day that she and her fiance broke off their engagement, she also was offered the opportunity to become the managing editor of Christianity Today. And those two things happening at exactly the same time made a big shift in her life. And so she, in, in a very, you know, in a moment, went from being on one track, one script, um, to a different script, you know, rather than being headed for marriage and that being the biggest thing, at least in her life at that moment, she was now headed for a... Um, um, uh, I guess a, a more fantastic career maybe than she thought was, you know, possible at that point, given how young she was. And that became her new focus instead. And so she kind of uses that as an intro um, into talking about the idea of faith and work in general. And she points out that the faith and work conversation has been pretty, pretty lively lately um, in the Christian sphere. And she says this is great, but that the conversation hasn't fully reached the people who make up over half of every Christian tradition in America, uh, meaning women. And so what she did is she kind of, just to make the book, she started a kind of survey project, I guess you could call it. And so for, um, I think she said about a year, she spoke with nine different groups of women. And, um, 
eight of those were in different cities. And then one of the groups was a group of college students who were studying in England. Um, and about 120 women she spoke to when she was getting ready to write the book about career and calling, vocation and all that. And I, I will say right now, um, it's a pretty limited perspective. Um, she's, she, and she, she admits that kind of right out in the introduction. She says, to be sure, these women can't speak or stand in for all Christian women. They tended to be at least middle class, have a college degree, live in or just outside urban areas, and be white. <laughs> so it's a fairly limited perspective, which is one of the things that I, I think is definitely problematic about the book. Um, and, but to she, be fair, though, if I can jump in for a second. Yeah, I mean, no, go, Victoria. Sure. I, I, I agree with you that that's a shortcoming of this book. But those three things that you just said also describe the three people talking on this panel right now. <laughs> that's so true. That's true. Which I guess means it's it's well targeted for us. Um, and uh, perhaps, and I wondered, I wondered why she didn't maybe broaden it broaden you know her research and talk to more different types of women but if she was thinking imagining an audience of women that were like the women that she is talking to then it, I guess it makes sense that you you know you you would want to talk to people who are like the people you want to reach if that makes sense um and she says though that even though it wasn't a huge sample that the sampling was big enough to identify some common themes so the common themes that she mentions are that almost all you know to a person, she said the women that she spoke with liked work. Um, they enjoyed the jobs they were doing and they um, had gifts and aspirations that they were um, seeing, getting to express in the workplace rather than in the home. And um, that was the first theme. And then the second theme that she mentioned was though that all of, nearly all of the women also had conflicted feelings about the fact that they were working in a professional way. Um, a lot of, she used the word churning, um, I guess, churning emotions. There wasn't a lot of peace. There were a lot, you know, they, they, there were lots of questions, lots of self doubt. Is this the kind of work I should be doing? Is this going to affect my kids in a negative way? Is this, um, for the single women, is this work going to negatively affect my marriage prospects? Um, all different kinds of questions that they mentioned, uh, the women that she spoke to about, um, these different issues. And, um, and she also mentioned too the kind of mommy wars thing of moms who work versus stay at home moms and that that was kind of floating in the ether too for a lot of these women who had children. And, um, um, she ends up, she ends the introduction with a statement of how she's imagining her intended audience and not in terms of demographics, I guess, but in terms of emotions or kind of, uh, I guess more of a spiritual, um, component. So she says, this book is for all women who dream of taking their hands to the plow of life and creating something good, something that will leave lasting goodness, truth, and beauty for this generation and generations to come, something that will bless their neighbors and enrich their children's lives and satisfy their own souls. The desire to work is given to all people made in the image of God, who is who himself is a worker and creator. And that leads into chapter one, in which she kind of lays out um, some of the biblical basis for for the book. Um, there's not a lot of biblical exploration in this book. She does use some scripture um, passages, and we're going to talk about one in a minute. But it, she's definitely not, I feel like, her task with this book, she did not sit down to try to give a like full-throated, you know, Bible-verse-heavy 
theology of work, that that's not really what she's aiming for. But in the first chapter, the first chapter is called Made to Reign, R-E-I-G-N. And um, she kind of walks through a little discussion of Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, which reads, and this is whichever translation she's chosen of scripture, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And she points out that this, his, him um, is describing man, but in the sense of mankind. So not just men, um, but, but all of, of humankind um, that this is, this is our purpose. And she says, you know, this might feel uncomfortable for us as kind of modern people of the Western part of the world to say that we're reigning or that we're ruling. Um, and, you know, but that it's important to, uh, it's important to explore this verse because she says, God intended all humans, not just for relationships with him and with others, but also for reigning over every inch of creation. And basically, she says, if, if you, whether you work or at home or on a job, or if you're doing any work, that you're part of this reigning. That basically, that she's arguing that the work we do is part of our reigning over creation that God charged us with. And she also explores in chapter three, the very beginning of Genesis, when God told Adam and Eve to, um, to you know, people the earth and subdue it. Um, and that um, she kind of draws those two together and says um, that this is part of our design so that she says, quote, this is why we work in the broadest sense of the word before paychecks, promotions and personal enjoyment. We work in order to properly bear the image of God, which I think is interesting. She also talks about um, in the, the chapter three, the worker God, about God as worker and as creator. And that God was undertaking work to make the world. And then because we're made in God's image, then we want to then work or make things. And, and none of this is, is new. I mean, if you think about something like Dorothy Sayers, The Mind of the Maker, um, which and she she cops in the book to being a Dorothy Sayers fan. So I think that's probably all percolating, too, in the back of her mind. And she's just not saying it all the time. Um, but uh in chapter one, or in this made to reign chapter, then she goes into, I think, making a pretty good point that if we're meant to reign over creation, that part of that is making the making of culture. She talks about um, culture making and references Andy Crouch's um, book, Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling, and then extends that into a discussion of how um, that the world that we are in now that we're trying to live out our callings in has been overwhelmingly built by and for men in ways that we might not even always realize and that this is a whole or it's a problem. She says that because um, if we're going to fully bear the image of God as humankind, then men and women need to both be making the culture because we're all made in God's image and God made us all to work. And she also is arguing in this first chapter that for that to fully happen, that women have to be in the workplace. This is, um, this is what she said, that um, God never intended for men to reign over creation alone. Um, it might be a man's world, but it was supposed to be a world governed by man and woman. And in societies like ours, where the uh, locus of cultural influence is in the marketplace and no longer the home, women must be in the marketplace in order to shape material and institutional culture. 
And I thought that was one of the most interesting points that she made. And, um, and she talks, um, she goes into more detail also later in this chapter about um, ways that this is true, that the world that we live in has been shaped by men. She talks about, um, particularly has a, a decently lengthy discussion of the film industry and how the overwhelming majority of film directors, for example, are men, so that almost every movie you see has been filtered through a male lens, kind of, um, which I thought was interesting. She also talks about um, medicine and how often women's symptoms are not uh, understood by doctors in the same way as men. Sometimes that women are more likely to be thought of as uh, kind of experiencing something psychosomatic so that um, they think they're experiencing symptoms more severely than they really are. She also talked about um, some of the statistics that show that um, most of the patients who are in part of trials for drugs and things for things like Alzheimer's and heart disease are almost overwhelmingly men. Even, and, and then the same prescriptions, though, are given to women, even though their bodies react differently to those same diseases. All that was, was interesting, um, though it kind of made this chapter a mixed bag because she was talking about so many different things. Um, and uh, so I think that it's, it's an interesting case to say that men and women are both meant to reign. And so we're all meant to be culture makers and to make the culture, she says now, nowadays in our culture, just in particularly in Western society, um, because the focus is on the marketplace, that's where we need to be. That's an interesting argument because I think that there are other Christians who would say, no, what we need to do is we need to try to bring more of the locus of control or the locus of culture back into the home space. So she seems to be pretty clearly staking um, out a, this is the way the world has changed, so we need to adapt and we need to be making the culture where the culture is getting made, which is in the marketplace. And I thought that was interesting. But let's go ahead and talk about that, because I think that that's all the things I wanted to say about those first couple of chapters. What do you guys think about this argument that we need to be in the marketplace because that's where culture is being made? I'll, I'll weigh on, on this one first. Um, I mean, on one hand, I agree with her. Because we should be influencing culture more. I, I was really glad that she put in the bit about both medicine, but especially uh, the film industry. Because the film industry is um, kind of beating us over the head with images everywhere we look. Because it's not just the actual movie anymore. It's also promos and... Um, trailers and billboards and all of these other things and if we are constantly getting um, a heavily male perspective through that yes we should be out there and influencing it more we should be taking advantage of sharing more stories um than what are currently being portrayed. On the other hand, like you said, um, there is the home element that almost is disappearing with the pervasive emphasis on culture right now. Uh, when you look at most of the pop feminist movements, it's all about the culture um, being affected by feminism and less about what women are experiencing at home. Um, so that was kind of a missing element that I noticed in her argument. 
that's a that's a good point, Leah. Um, that that dichotomy is interesting, um, Katie. When you were talking about um, when you were talking about Beatty's argument about being involved in culture, um, I was thinking of um, a book that I have not yet read, though I have read about, um, and that I think is coming up on a Christian humanist profiles. Um, that either has just been released or will be released um, sometime around when this episode drops. Uh, Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option. Do you guys yes. know about The Benedict Option? I'm super interested yeah. to read it. Uh, so, as I can understand it, Dreyer argues um, seemingly the opposite of what Beatty is arguing here. He says that since culture has gotten so diluted um, and so against um, the places where Christianity thinks it should be, I understand I'm generalizing here on both sides, but bear with me, um, that what we should do as Christians is kind of have these strategic communities where we can exist together. We can learn, we can uh, teach our children both religious and secular lessons. We can sort of have these Christian stronghold communities where we can be a little less um, affected by the broader culture. So I, I would like to hear Caitlin Beatty and Rod Dreyer have a conversation. That's my, my takeaway from chapter one. That would be awesome. I think it would be a super interesting discussion. Um, I think that we wanted to then uh, move on to a couple of other chapters too. And uh, I think that we were going to go next to Victoria with uh, some summary and discussion of chapter six. So chapter six is entitled How She Does It All. And um, this chapter is about um, what we would kind of in the parlance of our times call work-life balance. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to cover sort of three big bullet points from this chapter, hopefully quickly. Um, the first important thing is that Beatty argues that there are, um, and now I'm quoting, three barriers to Christian women pursuing a meaningful professional life and an invested family life simultaneously. Those three barriers are alliterative. They all start with the letter B, and they are bodies, bosses, and the Bureau of Lady Judgment. Uh, so I'm going to go through those three things quickly. Bodies, um, the idea that women have physical limitations to work outside the home that men do not have. Um, she tells the famous story from Lean In of Cheryl Sandberg sprinting across the parking lot at eight months pregnant so as to not be late for a meeting, and then um, subsequently demanding pregnancy parking. Uh, she relays some uh, breast milk pumping horror stories from various people. Just the idea that, um, as Katie was saying, that the world in general, and especially the workplace, is kind of um, organized around the male physical default and not the female one. So that's bodies. Uh, the second one, bosses, uh, is even more workplace bias related. She talks about 
Um, the fact that the United States, as far as equitable maternity and pregnancy policy, is really far behind um, lots of other developed countries. Uh, I'm quoting again now from page 157 in my edition of the book. The U.S. Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993 assures female employees 12 weeks of protected leave after pregnancy. This means, thank goodness, that a woman can't get fired for having a baby, but the protected leave isn't guaranteed paid, and the protection applies only to companies with at least 50 employees. So that means a lot of people are left out, right? Um, so that's bosses, and the third, uh, the Bureau of Lady Judgment, and this is the sort of mommy wars place, the idea that in addition to systemic uh, sexism outside in the world perpetuated by mostly men, this Bureau of Lady Judgment means... Uh, as Tina Fey puts it in Mean Girls, girl-on-girl -girl crime. Um, prejudice that, that women do to each other. Um, Passive-aggressive statements that stay-at-home moms don't know how working moms leave their kids, or working moms don't know how stay-at-home moms stimulate their brains staying home all day. The sort of um, justifications that actually are... Um, are kind of cruel to other women. So that's the first big point, those three B's. Um, and following the discussion of the three B's is an, I thought, pretty good discussion of the ways in which men in our society aren't really required to have it all the way that women are. The idea that um, if a man is taking care of his children, he's great and responsible and also possibly babysitting, um, but if a woman is doing it and not doing it exactly right, she's failing at it. So we, we don't judge dads as harshly as moms in that regard. And the third thing that she mentions that I wanted to say is she recommends that we replace the phrase work-life balance with the phrase work-home integration. Uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, she's kind of trying to put forward the idea that feeling like we're progressing and being stimulated and moving forward in both of those areas of our lives um, gives something positive to the other area. Like if I feel like I'm achieving something um, at work and I feel fulfilled, then I will be more likely to come home uh, in a good mood and be a positive contributor to my marriage, for example. Uh, so I liked that, but I also question her use of the word integration um, because I feel like that could mean, maybe she doesn't mean it this way, but I feel like it could mean that there's not a lot of distinction or shouldn't be a lot of distinction between my life at home and my life at work. I feel like it's so easy for us to bring our jobs with us everywhere we go now. Um, your email is on your phone and whatnot, um, and I, I don't really want to see that barrier break down anymore. Uh, so I, I feel like I've said enough in summary. Um, is there any of those uh, three points that I brought out that you ladies would like to respond to? I think um, I, I, I appreciate the things that she said about the workplace being built around men. And, and she's absolutely right about the kind of body barrier. 
Um, I, I mean, I have a friend at HB right now who is, you know, has been kind of pumping in her office, um, because she has a very small baby who's breastfed. And, um, so yeah, it's definitely a, um, it's definitely a reality. And I think, and I, I actually, I kind of, I kind of liked the work life integration thing. I see what you mean though, Victoria, there are some places where those barriers need to stay because otherwise I, I think work tends to encroach on home rather than the other, um, in some situations and you don't want work <laughs> coming too much into your, into your home. I do think too, that in some situations there can only be so much work life integration. It's, it's a nice idea, but I think particularly when, you know, you have, for example, very small children, um, you, you can only integrate them into jobs so much before they become a disruption. There's only so much you can do, you know, if something, and I know this is kind of a big reality for me because we have three small children and we don't, we don't live anywhere close to any family. So I can't, you know, if one of my kids gets sick or something, um, you know, and, on a day when I'm supposed to be at school and, um, and this is, this was more true last semester than it is this semester. This semester, my husband and I, David and I are actually trading places on the afternoons I teach so that, um, he's actually the one staying with our kids and not a babysitter, but I've had situations before where, you know, my kids are sick. And so our babysitter doesn't need to come over because then she could carry the sickness to her kids. And so then I have to figure out what to do with my kid. And, you know, I, I'm not going to take him into the classroom with me. You know, he'll be a big disruption. And at that point, I think when you have a situation with kids, it's um, a little bit disingenuous to say, oh, well, we should just integrate our work and family life more because sometimes that doesn't need to happen as soon as it's not possible. So that, I think, is something um, that I was thinking. And also regarding the kind of lady judgment thing, I think that that is – I think that's more true in theory than in practice. I, I it's very strange. I don't know if it's kind of more of an online phenomenon, so that people think it's a it's a it's a it's a big deal. But I, I I don't feel like any of the women that I know who have small children, and we all have different situations. All the moms that I know, I was thinking about this while I was reading the book that I know very few moms that are I work completely full time moms or I am completely stay at home mom moms. That most of the women that I know, and I mean, again, you know, I'm in a situation where I do both. So maybe the women that I gravitate to also do both. But most of the women that I know don't have that either or situation. And I've actually experienced very, very little judgment, if any, from other moms of small children about my choices. Now, I mean, I totally know it does happen um, or she wouldn't be writing about it in the book. But I do wonder sometimes, too, if... So some of that stuff is coming from within women and so they think they will be judged and so maybe we're kind of projecting even more than it's actually being said to us. Maybe that's not true. Maybe I just have really, really nice friends. <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. But uh, that's kind of how I was feeling when I was reading this chapter. I'll be honest. I judged literally while reading this chapter, like two pages before the judgment section. <laughs> there's um, there's a, a section where she talks about Haley Gray Scott, um, who who wrote the book Dear Mighty Things: Mapping the Challenges of Leadership for Christian Women, um, and that Scott um, realizes two years into her PhD that you can't have it all at the same time, and so she declines two tenure-track teaching positions to uh, stay home with her two children, 
And yes. I thought, this woman turned down two different tenure-track jobs? Is she out of her mind? Does she know how many of those there are? Like, Yeah, I know. I, yeah. <laughs> I real. forgot about that before you. And then I felt horrible <laughs> about it because I got to that Bureau of Lady Judgment and I was like, well, I can't even act like that's not me because I just did it two pages ago. No, I totally did too because who gets two offers? Two tenure track offers. Yeah, and actually my first thought was she has an iron will. I do not think I could do that. I don't think that I could turn. Yeah, that, no, that was crazy. I completely forgot about that part. Yeah, uh, I I guess I'm going to reflect a little bit on what your experience was, Katie, because I, I'm, I'm not a mom. I'm not married. I actually got the reverse judgment from the mommy wars. Um because I'm because I'm not married and I don't have children. So I was interested in that perspective with the Bureau of Lady Judgment, but I I almost didn't see that too much in what she was writing. She was writing more about um it it was just judgment in general, but it seemed more along don't judge the 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 housewife the stay-at-home moms <laughs> which yeah yeah you know no don't do that but uh I which I also do <laughs> just like uh you guys weighed in with that story about the tenure track but um my personal experience was the opposite where I had been judged because of my lack of um babies and uh, lack of a ring on a finger. Um, so that was a little uh, a little piece that I felt was missing from that section that was important about judgment. One that you think she would have mentioned because her that's because her situation she's single. too. Yeah, yeah she's yeah. single. And she even admits in the last section of this chapter, I think, that oh, but you know, I don't really know too much about this because I'm nowhere close to being a mom, but I've, I'm weighing in on this because I've seen this in other households and things like that. So I would have hoped that she would have mentioned some of the reverse judgment because the mommy wars, as they're called, it does work both ways. Um, but yet another gap. <laughs> Well, and you even have sometimes have different situations too. I mean, I mean, this is to me very unusual today, but I I do remember one of the because I try not to to do the judgment thing, but I do remember one of the few times I ever was feeling very judgy about another woman's choices. But that is because I it was a time when um, this was years ago. I had a um, I had a friend from high school who um, went to college and I think she did a teaching degree she trained to be like a, a kindergarten teacher or something I can't remember but then um, after she and I, maybe she taught for a year but after she got married um, she didn't work at all like and I mean she wasn't kind of already pregnant with a baby on the way because I think that's the expectation now is most women expect to have a career until they have babies or whatever but most women 
expect to work till they have babies. Like she, you know, I mean, it was, it, I was like, I remember at the time I was maybe 23, 24 and thinking, what is this, the fifties? Like that, you know, she got married and stopped working when she got married. Cause I remember thinking, what are you, what are you doing at home? Like all day, which I mean, again, that's not, that's not very charitable of me. That's not very graceful to say that. Cause you know, who knows? She could have been baking homemade bread all day, every day, you know, and she was that type. She could do lots of kind of complicated homemakery tasks, you know, and again, that's her choice. There should be grace for that. But I do think that, you know, there are even sometimes other situations or scenarios that she doesn't talk about where we can be judgy too. things that we wouldn't even necessarily think about, um, you know, but I, I, I've never, I haven't remembered that until just now talking about this book. And that was one of the strangest things, I guess, to, to hear uh, at the time that that was something that I guess some people still do. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's probably a whole book that's to be written within that context of women judging women just within the mommy wars circle. But, uh, it would have been nice if she had alluded to more of those dynamics rather than just one way. Well, Leah, do you want to um, go ahead and move on to your chapter? Sure. So I'm looking at chapter seven, which is called A Fruitful Life. Um, it looks at the different aspects of the Christian perspective uh, or perception of what a woman's fruitful life consists of and what is necessary for fruitfulness to be experienced by women. Um, this chapter, like all the others, does focus on a pretty narrow window of women, so primarily white women, well-educated in Western culture, but it does point out some important aspects of the perception of a fruitful life and um, opens the door to discuss whether some of those things are necessary or not. Although I am going to put this little caveat that we are never outright told what her definition of that perception of a fruitful life is. It's implied, but it's never fully defined. Um, this chapter did feel very focused on single women's experience while still acknowledging married women. But uh, the, that focus is something that I greatly appreciated because there was so much marriage talk in a lot of the other chapters. Um, the first and main point of this chapter looks at the spiritual support that is necessary for a woman to live a fruitful life. Um, the truth is many single women in their 20s and 30s miss that connection in churches through the gap in ministries. And I believe that that is something that we talked about on this podcast in our singleness episode last autumn. Um the concept of fruitfulness in the church for women primarily looks at their presence in the home and their abilities as wives and mothers. So the balance between wanting a family and wanting a career is an ongoing theme in Beatty's book, but this chapter points out a strong weakness on the spiritual side, which is if the church doesn't really exist for you outside of being married and or as a mother and doesn't expand or help you explore the ways that faith touches your career choices, how are you living up to a fruitful life in Christ? Um, this chapter also addresses how Christian colleges still have the presence of the MRS degree for their female students, uh, which is something that I can attest to witnessing firsthand in my own college experiences. Um, and the MRS degree ne 
means that there's a neglect in building the fruitfulness of the career that these young women are allegedly going to school for. Uh, however, something wonderful that Beatty does present in this chapter is that church history is full of single women who have lived fruitful lives, showing that it is possible to exist outside of that marriage and children's sphere and still have a fruitful Christian life. Um, some of the women that she mentioned were Amy Carmichael, a missionary in India, Lydia and Phoebe from the New Testament, Hildegard of Bigan, and Charlotte Lottie Diggs Moon. Now, for all of the issues or puzzlements or whatever you want to call them that she sets forward in this chapter, uh, Beatty doesn't provide an outright solution, probably for the simple reason that there is no outright solution. These problems kind of need to be addressed individually in each unique situation. Um, but my question is, do you think that there are solutions that can be applied to more mainstream Christian culture or subculture that can alleviate the issues that face women toward leading a fruitful life? Or did you ladies experience some of these quandaries? I think I mean, this is sort of my answer to all divide-based questions, but um, we can listen more, first of all. I, I, I think we can stop assuming that Christian people or Christian women live one particular way um, because voices from all of these places exist like you just need to know where to find them um, she references Christina Cleveland's work on singleness in this chapter um, Christina Cleveland is great I have heard her speak and uh, read a lot of her stuff um, she is a, a prominent voice um, on reconciliation, who who also talked about singleness really, um, really articulately, but also um, something that I think is great about this chapter in terms of um, showing that the sort of single or married question is not the most important question is that she really hits on. I'm not sure she ever uses this word, but she um, definitely is. Uh, is unpacking the Calvinist idea of vocation, um, the idea that um, God has given us talents and gifts in our work, whatever our work is, that we should use to glorify uh, him. She says, uh, this is on page 180, single or married, children or none, each of us is accountable for taking whatever God has given us, say a college degree, a pay raise, a supportive community, a scholarship, a trip to another country or culture, and putting it all to good use for the benefit of others and as a signpost of God's redemptive work in the world. Uh, so I, I really liked that paragraph. I think that it says that, you know, sometimes we can get caught up in the wrong identities or the wrong frames for ourselves. I think that you're so right about the listening and particularly, I think I was just thinking earlier, Leah, about what you said about feeling like you couldn't even really talk to other women about your career because they were, you know, just having like baby talk time. And I do think that, that that is definitely something that happens. I think that we tend to just gravitate towards the topics that um, are most, you know, common 
for us. And, and a lot of times, depending on the church that, you know, you're in, um, women in their kind of twenties and thirties are talking about, you know, family stuff, less so about, about work. And I, I was one of the, I remember she talked about one of the women that she had interviewed said that she actually felt a lot more comfortable around the men at church because they were talking about work. And that, you know, was the thing that's the biggest lens that's, that she sees her life through. That's the biggest thing in her life is, the, is her job. And so she would, you know, would kind of feel more comfortable talking to the men, but then she doesn't, you know, you don't want to be perceived as being inappropriate, right? Talking to someone else's husband or, you know, and I think that that's, it's, it's really sad. It's a sad situation um, as a woman to have to find yourself in of, you know, wanting to talk to someone about your job, but um, not having that opportunity. And I think, um, I was maybe really spoiled when we, Dave and I first moved to Kansas because the little church that we joined when we moved there, um, when we got there, there pretty much were no young families in our church. Everyone in our church at that time when we got there was either older, like middle-aged or, or retired. We had a lot of um, older people in our church or was young and unmarried or, you know, was kind of married without children. Um, our daughter, I was pregnant with her the first year we were there. When I had her, she was the first like little kid in our church. So I think I was a little bit spoiled because that whole first year, people would talk to me about, you know, what the teaching that I used to do in Georgia and the work I was doing in the library at the, you know, the little college there. And um, now after the baby showed up, everybody just talked to me about the baby. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely um, something to, to be said for trying to listen to everyone talk about what's meaningful for them, whether that's a job or family or, you know, whatever. Um, and to be open to embracing people's whole selves so that, you know, if someone wants to talk about family or if someone wants to talk about work or both, um, before we started recording listeners, I was telling Leanne Victoria's story, um, something that happened to me this week at work. I was at work in an office with another professor, she and I, but she and I were talking about our children. Um, she has a, a little baby, um, one little baby, and we were talking about babies. And a male coworker came by and stuck his head in and said something snarky to us about the fact that we were talking about family and not about literature. And I got so angry <laughs> because it's, it, it's, it's that kind of needless balkanization of family and work. And, you know, we should feel comfortable to, I guess, to integrate, to use baby's word. And also just something really practical, and I'll say this and I'm going to be done because I feel like I'm starting to ramble. Something really practical I think we can do too to help women who um, are pursuing careers and um, feel out of place is a big thing that churches can do that a lot of churches don't is to make sure that there are Bible studies or things that women can go to who work. Because so often the only Ooh, Bible amen. studies for women – Yes, right? They'll, they'll be in the yes. only in the morning – um, or which, and I've kind of had it both ways. When, when I first got to Kansas, we only had ladies nighttime Bible study, which I appreciated because then I was working. Then later that same church flipped after I had babies and I was home. It's like, I always benefited, but they kept changing it. So then later it was just during the day, but not at night. And so then the whole other section of women couldn't be there. Um, that's why I really appreciate our current church because we have both. There's Wednesday night women's Bible study and there's Tuesday morning women's Bible study. Um, and sometimes it's even, they'll, they'll offer the same class at both of those times, which is also great. Cause then if you can only go on Wednesday night, cause you work all day, but you could still talk about it with a friend who goes on Tuesday morning cause you're doing the same study. Right. So, um, that is huge and it's, it's practical, it's logistical, but a lot of times nobody does it. And I think it's something that really can bless working women to be able to go to a Bible study because it happens when you can go. So 
Was there anything else that we wanted to say before we move to passing on? Because time is, is moving on. Um, were there any other things that we wanted to say, parts we liked or concerns that we had about the book that we haven't already addressed? Do you guys have anything you wanted to throw in? Um, since I'm a history person, I just have to say that um, when Beatty is trying to expand the history of um, this struggle with women uh, between ho home and work. Uh, her history is awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say that. It, she doesn't word it well. She The research is very weak. Um, there, there have been books and books written about these subjects so it's not fair to expect her to unwrap all of that uh in a little section in her book but i had hoped that she would have given it um better treatment because in some places it seems that she is inappropriately using terms like the two spheres um the public and private sphere so that was something that did irk me uh, throughout the book whenever she used those terms because I felt she was using them incorrectly. She does. You're right. Uh, and I, I knew um, when I remembered that you were going to be on this episode too that you were going to be upset about um, her kind of shoddy historicity uh, in this book. And, and I was upset about it too. Um, there is definitely a margin in my book that says uh, that's not what the separate spheres are. Um, so uh, I'm with you. But, but also I, I think it's probably important to say like this book is not trying to do that. It's not trying to have an in-depth history. Um, and, and probably we as academics who focus on uh, feminism and feminist history to various degrees in our work are not really the audience for this book. Um, it's, it's very much a, a kind of a book for, um, it's a popular level book. So yes, I agree with you, but also maybe we should cut her some slack there. That's true. I'm still just a little upset about it. <laughs> um, I, I, there was, I'll say something I liked and something I didn't like because that's nice and balanced. Um, one thing I think that, um, one thing I think that she said that was really good is at the very end of the book, there's a section called where do we go from here? And she's talking about what are things we can do to encourage women who are in the working world. And she talks about some of the things we've said about having women's Bible studies at different times. Um, one thing she says too, that I thought was great is that it's important for pastors or teachers to talk about um, and highlight people in the congregation who are working, men and women, kind of from the pulpit, that it's important to basically to acknowledge when you're preaching that some women are working. And I and I think about that a lot because I feel like most of the time when we hear sermons at church, if somebody's going to, if, if, if pastors use metaphors, um, they're all the time choosing to use like marriage metaphors or parenting metaphors. And I've been noticing it more and more lately. Um, which is weird because I think I notice it more now that those metaphors actually apply to me. I think I notice it even more than when they didn't, though. I'm always thinking, okay, could you pick a metaphor that doesn't only apply to like married people with children? 
because so often it feels like that's what's happening. So I appreciated that she mentioned that. And I will just give one other uh, one other plug. I feel like this is like commercial for my church day. But one thing they did at our church that I loved last year was I think it was last year um, on the weekend of Labor Day. <laughs> instead of our pastor preaching a sermon, what they did is they had a panel where five church members were seated on stage with the pastor. He moderated the panel, but basically there were five people who worked different kinds of jobs and they talked about their jobs and how they lived their faith out at work. And there were men and women up there. Now in my, there we have three services and my service, the woman on stage was my friend, Christy, who is a stay at home mom that, you know, so full disclosure, that's her job. And so that was maybe a more traditional role. And she was the only woman on stage in that service. But in the 30 or in the 1130 service, it was totally different panels each time. And I know that in at least one of those other services, there was a, at least one woman, maybe more on stage who were working in the professional world, um, you know, full-time jobs. So I, I really liked that, that they took the trouble to highlight, not just highlight people in the church who were working and what their jobs are, um, and showing that you can you can live out your faith not just in a ministry job because sometimes I think we think oh you know to you got to be in full time ministry to be Christiany at work you know but I thought that was great that they were highlighting men and women in the business world and also you know a woman working from home I thought that was cool and um, I wanted to share that my my big beef my last thing the thing that I didn't like the most about this book my huge beef with this book is that I think that it's coming from a very privileged place in the sense that all the things she says about work are related to love your work. You should love your work. It's a vocation and it's a calling and, you know, um, it's important to, and if you, if you're doing a job you love, then it's going to make you a better mom and all this stuff. And she says, um, in the last section of what we can all do, one of the things she says is most of all, enjoy your work and talk about why you do. Particularly she's saying this about moms. Model having a calling and vocation that's distinct from your children but contributes to their well-being. And the whole time I was reading, I was thinking, yeah, okay, but what if you don't love your job because you're doing your job to pay the bills? And that's something that she never talks about. She also, listeners, we should have said this before, at the end of every chapter in this book, she profiles a specific woman who she interviewed and whose story she feels like kind of fits that chapter's theme. But of all of the women, none of those women who are profiled in the book work because they have to. And that's a huge glaring omission. Um, and I know that she's she's trying to cast a vision. So yeah, maybe she's trying to deal with um, ideals or the way things should be, maybe rather than the way things are for a lot of women. But the reality is that for most women who are working, um, definitely, definitely, I think in, in other place, places in the world, but also in, in America, a, most women are working because they have to, because they need to put food on the table or pay their kids school tuition or whatever. And so for most women, the idea of choosing a job because you love it is just impossibly attain unattainable. And and so that was frustrating for me. I just, and you know, she can write the books she, that she wants to. She doesn't have to, to cover, you know, every type of woman, but it would have been nice in the book if she'd acknowledged, hey, there are people out there who work because they have to. And she you know, says that in chapter four. Oh, she does. Okay. She, she covers it in her sort of history ish chapter. Um, 
she also talks about the fact that women um, working because it's a calling and not because they have to is incredibly historically recent um, when when you think broad strokes but I'm with you um, in terms of the the end of chapter profiles how come she doesn't actually speak to any of those women like not one no, no, I know. And it would have been really interesting if she had, you know, I mean, even if she'd taken like one chapter in the book to say, okay, if you're working a job you hate because you have to, what are some ways that we can try to think of to elevate that spiritually? Because you're, because to still think of that work as work that is valuable, because she almost seems to be saying that work is valuable because we love it, which is, is, is difficult. Because what if you don't love your work? Then is it not valuable? Is it not your vocation? Are you not reigning? you know, over the earth as God intended you to do, you know, it's, it's, no, it's right. Kind of, I mean, yeah. I think, think about the Beatitudes, right? I mean, that sort of speaks to the idea that if you suffer on earth for a good cause, you know, yeah, oh, sure, you, you sure. will be rewarded in heaven. Yeah, I, th- I think that like what you're saying is, is totally true. So, you know, I think, and, and again, you're right. I mean, there's an audience question. So maybe she's thinking, maybe, I, I think the book seems to be very calculated to try to help women who are in the workforce to not feel like that they have, you know, I don't know, settled for something that's second best, right? After marriage and a family and so many of the things that the church has elevated um, throughout time. And so, I mean, I, I can I can see why she chooses the emphases that she does. But, you know, that's just worth saying that um, there's a little bit of, of privilege happening here. So we're going to um, we're going to wind this up by giving some recommendations, as always. So let's start with Victoria. What are you recommending this week? So I am recommending a viral video that, to my knowledge, just dropped this morning. Um, it's uh, it's Friday the 10th. And this is a viral video um, released by the BBC where a uh, professor that they were interviewing as an expert is um, is interrupted on his Skype interview by his two small children. Uh, lots of places are reporting this as uh, the most hilarious video ever, um, the funniest thing to happen today, etc., etc. And... Um, uh, a little girl comes in first. Uh, she sort of Monty Python silly walks into the office in a way that is quite funny. She's about four. And then she is um, followed in by her baby brother uh, in a walker who's trying to keep up so hard. Um, and the interviewer notices first and says, kind of to my ear a little disdainfully, uh, I-, I think your children have walked in the room. Um, and then the uh the children's mother uh slides like tom cruise risky business slides into the office to try to corral the kids and like books are falling off shelves and it's chaos and uh the dad the interviewer is just kind of laughing um but the mom is frantic and trying to get them out of there um and then the the two men laugh and the clip is over um, and, and I was just really struck by that um, because it is funny and it does kind of show that um, that that people work really hard to balance work and family. You know, he's working from home. Um, but I, I can't get the panicked look on the mom's face out of my head. Like the idea that um, he is less bothered and she is more bothered by this situation makes it seem to me slightly less funny than I think 
uh, all of the articles written about it are making it seem. So that's my recommendation. We'll link to it in the show notes. Watch the video yourselves and tell me if I am overreacting. For what it's worth, I don't think you are. Um, I felt for that mom. I did because I was thinking I I think I would probably be acting similarly in a similar situation. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Give it give it a watch. Um, Leah, how about you? I am going to recommend two history books. Surprise, surprise. Um, One titled Women and the Public Sphere in the Age of the French Revolution by Joan B. Landis. Um, And this book is wonderful because it proposes an argument, and this is one of many, as to when the division of the public and private sphere happened. And her argument is that it happened during the French Revolution, and um, she is very eloquent in the way that she puts forward that argument and examining what is the public sphere, what it consists of, versus the private sphere. Um, And also, in the same lines, I'm recommending the book Family Fortunes, Men and Women of the English Middle Class by Leonora Davidoff and Catherine Hall. Um, This one is actually one of the first history books written in the style of social history, meaning it's one of the first history books that is written looking at the everyday man and woman. Um, So this is Uh, very important for women's history. Um, Some might say it's a classic women's history book. And it also addresses a bit of the division between the public and private spheres, or not so divided spheres, if you actually look at what these historians are saying. Um, There was a lot alluded to this history in Beatty's book, or she used these phrases a lot. So if any of our readers are interested in more of the history behind that, these are two sources that would hopefully fill in more of that understanding behind some of the terms she used, um, especially considering Western world women and culture. Thank you so much. Um, What I'm going to recommend this week is kind of I mean, it is tangentially related to our topic today because it's to do with ideas about work and then, but, but also, um, home spaces. So I'm recommending, uh, Kathleen Norris's The Quotidian Mysteries, Laundry, Liturgy, and Women's Work. Um, Kathleen Norris is a a poet and, um, actually I got introduced to this, um, text, which is, it's actually, it was delivered as a lecture, I believe, and then is in printed form now, but we read it this week for my book club. Um, I'm in a book club with some other faculty wives from a university and um, some other women. And it is, is such an interesting look at the spiritual significance of our kind of daily routines and seasonal cycles that we go through. And um, particularly as, as some of those things are related to the creative process so that um, she talks, because as a poet, you know, she's thinking in those terms. And so she's talking about things like how... Um, going through dry spells or dormant periods of creativity and kind of learning that um, like how the plants have to die in 
the winter to come back again in the spring that um, she used to kind of fight those periods of dormancy in terms of creativity to, to create her work. Um, and But then she came to realize that it was almost a form of uh, a time of gestation where her ideas were kind of, you know, developing and then they could burst forth later. And, and she also explores a lot of ideas of how the everyday home things that we do, how those things cannot just how they cannot, they're not just menial tasks, but they're things that can actually have meaning and um, particularly tasks that have been kind of chided at or dismissed in the past as women's work, things like laundry or cooking or baking bread, things like that. I found it really interesting and um, particularly as a person, I'm not very much a creative person. So it was very interesting to read a kind of poet's perspective, a creative person's creative person's perspective on the kind of daily tasks I feel like that consume so much of our days at times. So that's my recommendation for this week. Listeners, thank you so much for uh, being with us for the Christian Feminist Podcast for this episode. We would love to hear from you anytime. So if you have a topic or reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and any other episode, check out christianhumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Christian Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Leah Henning, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in one week for our Call the Midwife episode. We had a slight change in schedule, and so you might have heard me rec- or say that episode was coming at the end of the divorce episode. We ended up um, flipping the order. So actually, um, this time you'll be getting a new episode in one week instead of two. So tune in in one week for our Call the Midwife episode. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.